It's Thursday, August 13th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Mark Reith, and joining me in studio today from Rule Breakers, David Kretzman, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Gentlemen, how's it going? Hey, Mark. This is going to be a jaw-dropping show. Jaw-dropping like Geno Smith. Oh. <laughs> the news is coming out about that. It yeah. was not an exactly the one-sided uh, affair it was presented to be. That's what I'm hearing. And as a, as a Jets fan, I'm just I'm thrilled about all oh, of this. Oh, that's right. This is, this You're is fantastic for me. Fan. Yeah. Oh, just uh, the self-loathing has hurt. has culminated. Uh, plenty to talk to talk about today, including news from Tesla and from Twitter. But we begin with Wayfair's second quarter earnings earnings report. Jason what a report it was! Wayfair crushing it. Sure, sort in of. The, in the immortal words of House of Pain, they came to get down. They came to get down. Oh so God. get out your seats and jump around. Well said. And at least that's what investors did yesterday, right? And the stock finished up like thirty percent. And um, I mean, seriously, I think if there was any question as to whether Wayfair was in this to to you know for the long haul, I think all of those questions have essentially been answered because. You know, it's only been a public company for a very short period of time, and this mm. is you know maybe four or five, potentially six reporting quarters they've had now, and all along the way, I've been following it ever since it went public because it, it to me was I really honestly never thought it would make it public. I thought Amazon would buy it before it ever did. Right. Uh, but you know, they they are maybe more than one billion dollars annually in sales, and that's growing at a very rapid clip. I think the the top line. Grew somewhere in their neighborhood of sixty-six uh, percent. Gross margin ticked up one hundred and forty basis points, and that's really important here because gross margin, you know, when, when gross margin is expanding, that's telling us that they're actually, you know, able to maintain some pricing on their goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's still not profitable, and, right. and that's understandable because they are building out a business here, and they have to focus on a lot of spending in order to grow that business. But one thing we pay attention to with Wayfair. Is the uh, the repeat customers and business from orders from repeat customers were up from fifty three point nine percent to somewhere in the neighborhood of of fifty six percent and that that is a trend that has kept on growing over time here and the reason why that's important is because it means they have to spend less you know in order to acquire customers once you have that repeat business you know that's that's all that's all more business that drops down to the bottom line easy yeah and and right now we know they're going to be spending a lot in advertising and customer acquisition uh, but the longer term strategy for this business is to eventually ratchet back on that ad spend marketing spend and, and, and you know create sort of that brand awareness so that they have that strong sort of repeat customer base now with that all said it's also worth mentioning that this quarter they saw record number of new customer ads mm-hmm. and so they're now at four million customers uh, um, you know they're very. It's a very Amazon-like business, very customer service focused, and uh, you know focused on that free delivery with orders of forty-nine dollars or more. And so, with a number of different properties under that sort of Wayfair umbrella, they're really keying in on 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 the uh, you know that market, that that home goods market. And I, I just I think when you look at sort of the bigger term or the bigger the bigger picture trend of e-commerce. This looks like another one of those companies that's really helping lead the way. Absolutely, and they certainly see a lot of room uh, for for Wayfair itself to run. David, in the call, uh, the CEO said that they have, as as Jason mentioned, about four million customers. Uh, he thinks that there are about sixty million customers in the U.S. alone that they could reach. Uh, do you believe that? And are you one of those customers? I'm not one of the customers yet. Mm. Uh, I'm still stuck in the uh, IKEA streak for now. But <laughs> uh, I'm totally. This is a huge 
market, the home furnishing stores so like Bed Bath Beyond, stores like that, they make up a $33 billion market. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of room for Wafer to run. Still, the early innings here, as Jason mentioned, you know, they're not profitable now, but it makes sense for them to be reinvesting it back into the company, acquiring customers, building out that base of customers and suppliers as well. So, still a lot of room to run. Uh, it makes sense for them to be reinvesting in the business right now. And I'm not a customer yet, but one day, I bet it will. Be. Give it a One chance. Day. One day. One thing it's worth noting too is, I mean, they're pursuing a private label strategy uh, as well, which mm-hmm. is gaining traction. And ultimately, what that allows them to do is is help sort of grow that margin line over time as well. You see those private label brands. I mean, I think Dick Sporting Goods is another good example mm-hmm. of, of a business that's you know introduced more of that private label, and and it's just something that it, it's one more option for uh, customers to to you know consider. And it's one that Wayfair controls even more mm-hmm. uh, than the than the typical sort of seven thousand uh, supplier, you know, seven thousand supplier uh, chain that they have. Because I mean, that's the, one of the beauties of this business model is they just they don't maintain any inventory. Really, I mean, they're just more or less kind of like a logistics and customer service business mm-hmm. at this point, which is really pretty pretty effective. Right. And uh, there's a lot of value there for all of those sort of. Mom and pop operations around the country that are that are looking to get their goods out beyond just sort of that local reach, and Wayfair really enables them to do that. Mm-hmm. So very, very, uh, you know, very popular offering, and, and I, I suspect they will continue to to grow like this. And, and I think the market is right to really be excited about you know the stock today because I think this really is a company that has uh, got some staying power. Definitely one to watch. All right, let's move right along to Tesla, which is filed to sell 2.1 million shares of common stock. That's worth around $500 million. David, when we were talking about this before the show, you mentioned that Tesla might be keeping the amount low in order to avoid spooking the market. What did you mean by that? Yes, yeah, so uh, th- this will raise about $500 million, and there might be another $75 million tacked onto that. Mm-hmm. I think. They're they're keeping this low, I think, somewhat intentionally. Actually, on the conference call, the CFO and Elon Musk were talking about this, and they said, "No, we we don't really need to do an equity offering." But Elon Musk mentioned it as you know, it could be a risk reduction measure. Hmm. So this is a way for them to gain extra cash. The company is spending like crazy right now. Over the past year, they spent about two billion dollars, you know, investing in you know developing the the Model Three, the mm-hmm. Gigafactory with the battery production. So. It, but but this move it only dilutes the shares outstanding by about a little less than two percent. So okay. it's not n- nothing to spook the market too much. And then Elon Musk is also and he he's mentioned that he's expecting to purchase about twenty million dollars mm-hmm. of the five hundred million dollar offering. So the stock is actually up today, which isn't something you would typically expect when. The company comes out saying, "Hey, we're going to dilute your shares, your ownership in the company." <laughs> right. uh, but the the stock is actually up today. I think partly because uh, a it is relatively low dilution, less than two percent. B Elon Musk uh, is buying into it. Right. So all in all, I think it makes sense for Tesla. The stock isn't too far off its um, all time high. Mm-hmm. Uh, the company needs the cash, and you know at this point, you can't argue with more cash considering. All the heavy investing that they're doing right now. Well, let's talk about some of those investments, Jason. Uh, the Gigafactory. When are we going to see this thing? When is it going to be done in Nevada? Giggity Factory, right? Giggity. Yes. Uh, That's the one. Um, I, I, so it is something. Obviously, it will take some time to, to get online here. Now, is the timeline laid out? Is it by the end of 2016? I think that's the plan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know that that obviously remains to be seen whether they can actually hit that timeline. But I, th- I think that really it just speaks to the larger sort of notion that investing in Tesla. Is not investing in a car company. Right. I mean, this is investing in a a car company that is turning into really sort of a multi pronged 
energy slash disruptor, right? I mean, they, they're doing all sorts of things in order to try to help reshape the way we do things, whether it's driving a car or consuming power or you know preserving power or developing you know power or however it may come across. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that in, anyone who invests in in Tesla, I don't own shares honestly, and and I feel like. Um, I probably will at some point buy some shares because it just it's a, such a fun story to follow, but it really does require the ability to think ten and twenty years down the road. Mm. And you know, you sort of put that in tandem with something like Solar City, which we we have, but we own Solar City in, in and Tesla in million dollar portfolio, and and these are you know we we approach both investments really as sort of they're smaller positions. But we really, really believe that the world is headed in this direction because we more or less have to. And so you look for those businesses that are really helping shape the industries. And and obviously Elon Musk is a part of both companies. Um, and so I you know I think again the the Gigafactory is just one more step in sort of figuring out how to really make all of this work and, and getting getting that resource I think is going to be tremendous because it's going to it's going to then give them a lot of options and I think the fact that they're they're able to bring that thing online they're able to get the funding to do that is is a real testament to uh, you know there enough there's enough money out there that believes this really is the right direction and, and so I think for investors that's really uh, very telling. David, let's talk Keurig. Keurig, yes. <laughs> the coffee company reported earnings last week. We didn't really talk about it on the show. It just kind of slipped under the radar, which is surprising because of just how bad these earnings looked. Uh, just an indication, sales of brewers and accessories dropped 25% this quarter. What happened here? I mean, and the stock actually fell 30% exactly. last Thursday. So I figured, hey, this is something worth talking about. But yeah, so total sales were down 5%, diluted earnings per share down 22%. The pod net sales, so Keurig makes a lot of the, the generates a lot of revenue through those coffee pods. Mm-hmm. The net sales were down one percent, even though the volume of the pods was up five percent. So that that kind of signifies the company is losing pricing power with those right. pods. So the price per pod is going down. So pod sales were down. Yeah, and as you said, those brewers and accessory sales down twenty six percent. The company is really struggling here, and they're hinging a lot on the upcoming release of Keurig Cold. Mm-hmm. So they're partnering with. Uh, uh, Coca-Cola, which actually owns a stake in Keurig now, they're partnering with Dr. Pepper's Snapple Group as well. Ba- basically, the, the Keurig Cold is a platform similar to you know the hot beverage platform. Keurig Cold will be for cold drinks, so mm-hmm. Coca-Cola, Sprite, uh, I think Fanta will be in there. Dr. Pepper, uh, Fanta. <laughs> we'll Fanta. say no more. <laughs> I mean, come on, I'm I'm so how can you say stuff. no to Fanta? Don't sleep on the orange Fanta. That's, that's I don't know. I like it, it's it. a big deal. But uh, the Keurig Cold platform will be released later this year, and they're really hinging a lot. On that platform being successful, but these new cold plat- uh, brewers will sell for between two hundred ninety nine and three hundred sixty nine dollars each. Mm-hmm. And you think of SodaStream, which has struggled a bit. Uh, you know, I think SodaStream has, their <laughs> yeah. brewers are you know maybe seventy dollars <laughs> or something like their machines are seventy dollars or so. Right. So so we'll see. And management also announced a plan to buy back a billion dollars worth of, of shares, and they're laying off five percent of employees. It's like I don't know if buying back a ton of stock is really the right move when you're losing your pricing power, you're selling less product. I'm not really sure about the strategy here, and they're hinging so much on Keurig Cold when their last release, Keurig 2.0, didn't exactly pan out too well either. So that was going to be my next question, just because 2.0 was supposed to be 
the the turnaround before this turnaround. It was supposed to, in 2012. I, I think it was 2012. They lost the patent for their K cups, right? And suddenly margins went down and profits started to narrow, and that's understandable because mm-hmm. everyone wanted a slice of this market. But Keurig came along and said, "Don't worry, guys. Keurig 2.0. That's going to save everything." <laughs> and and the way they were trying to save everything was making it so that and, and correct me if I'm wrong here because I don't drink coffee. I'm already over caffeinated to begin with. Good yeah, for you. Too man. much energy for me. Coffee. Wow. Oh yeah. No. Just Red Bulls all day. Ah. <laughs> Well, a lot healthier. Uh, a lot yeah, healthier. Sure. Um, so the tur- turnaround was supposed to come with Curie 2.0 because the idea was the pods could only work if they were K cup brands. Mm-hmm. But then everyone hated that because everyone had gotten used to these other pods in the last couple of years. Everyone had their own brands that they liked, the Dunkins and the Starbucks. So Curie came out and said, "You know what? You can use those pods now. Don't worry." But then they lost all the profit that they were supposed to be gaining by making it just K cup specific. Can cold really turn it around? If 2.0 was supposed to be the big turnaround, how can I believe that cold is going to be the next 2.0? It's a good question because, like I said, these brewers are not cheap. So mm-hmm. it's, it, I wonder as if consumers are really going to find it appealing to pay $300 for a machine, then pay more for the pods mm-hmm. to make make those drinks rather than just buying you know a six pack of Coke or you know twelve pack of Coke. Uh, but so so I don't know. I I, I think the, the cold beverage market is about three times lo- larger than that hot beverage market. So there is a bigger market opportunity. But as we saw with SodaStream, it's not necessarily an easy market to tap mm-hmm. in the U.S. I think Keurig does have the benefit of having Coca-Cola as an investor and a partner with that, and Keurig has a known brand. Those are two things that SodaStream didn't have. So, I definitely would expect Keurig to do better than SodaStream. I think they have the potential to do a lot better than SodaStream did, but still, management's made some questionable moves over the past year, buying back stock when the company is really struggling. The stock has just cratered over the past year. It's gone from over $150 down to about $50 a share now. So, those stock buybacks you know, at $120 a share, looking like a pretty poor investment. So, we'll, we'll see. Keurig Cold uh, will definitely be the thing to watch in the in coming months for Keurig. Yeah, that's really interesting to see. You know, we always sort of we, we put a lot of scrutiny on stock buybacks, and in, in some cases, it's sort of a damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? Mm-hmm. Because in this case, I, I mean, you got to like the fact that at least they're buying back shares when mm-hmm. shares are depressed. But by the same token, with the business in such a struggling uh, state, is that money that is being wasted where they could be? You know, investing in future technology, and I, I tend to think the latter. There, I'm not sure I'm really all that fond of these buybacks either. And they also went into debt to buy back the stock, so their cash depl- oh, their cash well, position that... was really depleted. They yeah. added to their long term debt position, so I, I really question a lot of decisions with management. This has been a great investment over the past five, ten years. It's been a phenomenal perform. We've actually had it in rule breakers, and it's been one of our best performing stocks. But mm-hmm. over the past year, definitely some questionable things going on. We need to warn our listeners and our viewers. A death cross is approaching. Oh my gosh. The mother of God. Not That's right. Death the death cross. For those of you out there who haven't heard of this ill omen, it is a technical indicator that occurs when the Dow's 50 day simple moving average crosses below the 200 day moving average, creating the death cross. Jason, are you worried about the death cross? Wow. I mean, I feel like. Uh... I feel like maybe I should be after after the after death cross. sounds yes. ominous. It yeah. does. I think that's the idea. Well, it's supposed to indicate a, a bear market, but Jason, we were talking about this before the show. Not always accurate. No, and I'd say I pay about as much attention to this as I do to what was said on the View yesterday. Mm. And and you know, for you. those out there who don't know me very well, that means none. none. <laughs> um, yeah, to me, like again, this is a technical indicator. I'm not sitting here bashing. 
technical investors. I, that's fine if that's what you want to do. It's not what we do here. Mm. And I mean, you look at, you see words like momentum and stochastics and all that stuff, candlesticks and cups and handles. And it's just like, all right, whatever. I mean, we're focused more on sort of bottoms up, invest in great businesses. And I feel like, you know, this is one of those things where it's really easy for the people that believe in this stuff to make a really big deal out of it. And when it doesn't work out, they can say, oh, well, it's it's not perfect. It's not 100% foolproof. But then when it does work out, they're the first ones to the headline. Say, we told you so. We told you so. Right. Death cross. So, you know, I mean, it's it's what I, I read something where the last two out of three death crosses that formed, the market went down. If the market does not go down this time, that means that two out of four, which means it's basically a flip of the coin. And, and I think the historical data really shows that this is not a reliable uh, indicator anyway. It's far more reliable, I think, to find great businesses and, you know, do the Charlie Munger and just sit on your hands, right? So, yeah, I mean, over the long term, what's going to drive the stock market and individual stocks is the underlying business performance. So, with, with our time horizon at the full of at least three years, and, you know, we often think, and you know, over five years or even decades, uh, the, the underlying businesses are what, what are going to drive performance. You're obviously going to have sways in the market. You know, you're going to have bull markets, bear markets, but I'm not too worried about the death cross. I think it's <laughs> even if it's right, you know, 10, 20 percent of the time, like you said, Jason, it's a flip of a coin. Find great businesses, stick with them. And, and you'll be well off over the long run. And when you find those great businesses, the death cross, if the market does end up tanking, can present you with some interesting opportunities. Get a discount. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Death cross. All right, or optimist here, Mark. Yeah. Glass. <laughs> oh, really? Happy cross. Yay. Uh, last but certainly not least, let's talk Twitter. The social network is removing its 140-character limit, at least on private messages. Uh, Jason, why? Why this move? Sure. I mean, I think this makes sense. They're looking to boost engagement within the platform. And I think with you know, on the on the main platform, the Twitter feed. For one, it's it's nice to keep that free flowing and sort of. If you just yank that limit all together, then you'd just become something like Tumblr or Medium or email. Who cares? Just yeah, or private email. messages. Yeah, and, and it probably becomes a bit annoying. Uh, but with with direct messages, you know, I think that just opens it up to, you know, people are able to to be a little bit more personal direct message is sort of the nature of a direct message to begin with. And, and so, removing that constraint makes sense because it's not public facing. I think what was interesting um, was when a product manor, manager, Sachin uh, Argawal, he declined to comment when asked whether Twitter is thinking about removing the 140 character constraint on public tweets. Hmm. So, you know, for me, I look at that and I say, well, I, I, I appreciate maybe declining to comment because you don't really have anything to say about it. But yeah, I would actually be. I've seen a lot of people hit me up on Twitter and saying they think that it would be neat if they did that. I guess I could see if they wanted to expand it, but if they just yank that limit outright, I think they would probably suffer some serious blowback from core users. I don't know that I would quit using Twitter altogether, but I do think it would become a bit more sort of cluttered and and uh, and, and less really free flowing. So, you know, I, I do understand on the direct message side, I, I would rather see them keep the the main Twitter feed with the limit because, you know, tweets are essentially just like little envelopes where you can open them up and find more. Right. Oh, wow. That was that was artful. <laughs> well, that was poetic. Very artful. That was very nice. Are you, do you, do you, are you sponsored by Twitter? I should be. You, you talk about it all the time. <laughs> I should be. You also talk about Periscope. We have our Periscope too. going. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> we have our Periscope going today. Uh, Jason, you love this thing. And there was a bit of news from Periscope earlier this week. Tell us a bit about sure, that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was really interesting. Yesterday, uh, one, of, one of Periscope's co founders and the CEO, Kayvon Beckpour, 
uh, went on Periscope to mm. do a live feed to give us an update on how Periscope is doing. Mm. And I think that was one of the things from this most recent Twitter earnings call. There's a lot of a lot of interest out there in how Periscope is doing. It's still brand new, really just launched in um, in, in I think what the, the middle of March or so, and, and we knew that they saw a million users in the first ten days. After that, no real clues to what was going on. But you know, Kayvon went on there yesterday to give us some updates, and uh, it, it turns out that now Periscope has hit the ten million uh, total accounts mark, which I think is impressive. I yeah. mean, that's ten million users in a short amount of time. Um, and he, he, they were explaining to us how they sort of measure um, what their primary metric is in measuring sort of Periscope success, and it's not. Downloads or users—it's—it's it's the amount of time watched. It's the amount—the aggregate amount of time people spend watching broadcasts every day, because that ultimately means that they have people who are interested in in what's going on. Their point was that Periscope focuses on the experience in the time watch, not users or downloads, because good content begets users. If you have good content, the users will come, mm. and time watched is that indicator. Um, and other interesting things, I mean, they are looking at bringing a landscape mode into the platform, um, considering possibly making the replays available for more than 24 hours. I would like that. Yeah, I think, and, and they, they've got a lot of feedback from that, in that they like keeping it fresh, but they also know that a lot of the core users out there really would like to be able to to maintain a longer than 24-hour uh, window there. And I agree. I think that'd be pretty cool. Um, and, you know, talking about some search options. So, being very deliberate in how the business is, is growing, but they were, they were quick to note that Twitter has been a wonderful resource and they're giving them, giving them all the resources they need to, to develop the platform. And so, you know, I think that, um, I think this is something that will continue to gain traction as time goes on. I'm very encouraged. If people want to watch us on Periscope, how would they do that? Well, uh, you can go to your app store on mm-hmm. your iPhone or your Android device, and you can download the Periscope app. And if you have a Twitter feed, then you can link it up directly to that. And if you don't, well, you should, and then you can link it up directly to that. But uh, <laughs> from there, it's basically just going on there and following uh, people that you might be interested. For example, if you wanted to follow The Motley Fool, you mm-hmm. can follow The Motley Fool, and you mm-hmm. will see more Periscope uh, feeds from us as time goes on. Earning season, a very popular time, yep. and um, whenever anything comes up, I think our poobah of PR, Allison Southwick, will be trolling around the fourth and fifth floors looking for some good info to disseminate. So uh, keep your eyes peeled. Fantastic. All right, Jason, David, guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Mark Reith. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.